Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 6 as we continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of John. We get back to that study this week. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the seats, underneath the seats in front of you. And if you're at home and you don't have a Bible and you're watching this uh, this morning, I will read uh, most of the verses and have them on the screen so you'll be easily be able to follow along with us. We're looking this morning at John chapter 6, verses 28 through 34. John chapter 6, verses 28 through 34. Just to give you just a little background here, earlier in this chapter, uh, Jesus fed the 5,000. He fed 5,000 men, but there were also women and children, so it's likely there were 15 to 20,000 people that he fed. And that crowd, that is the crowd he is now speaking to. And they have come to Jesus seeking more bread. They have come to Jesus wanting more food. And Jesus challenges them with his identity. He wants them not just to come for food, but to come because he is the Messiah, to come because he is the Savior. And we pick it up in verse 28. Then they, that crowd, said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. So as Jesus is speaking to them, he is in Capernaum. The feeding of the 15 to 20,000 took, took place on one side of the lake. They have now come to the other side of the lake. Capernaum was Jesus' base of ministry for most of his three years of ministry. In fact, when we get toward the end of chapter 6, we will see that he is actually ministering for much of this talk in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so he wants them, as I mentioned, to come to him for the right reasons. He is questioning their motives and rightly questioning their motives for why they are coming to him. He wants them to understand and believe because of his true identity, not because of something they want from him. Well, that brings us to our first point this morning, and that is the work of God. I want to briefly review with you the purpose of John chapter 6. I was gone last week, so I just want to very briefly go over the purpose of John chapter 6, give you that kind of flyover view of John 6 and what the big picture is of this chapter. This chapter is about the difference between a true follower of Christ and a false follower of Christ. It is about the difference between one who endures faithfully and one who abandons Christ. It is about one who believes and one who in the end does not believe. There is going to be a great dividing of the followers of Christ as we move through this. And John chapter 6 is one of the most specific 
chapters in the entire New Testament dealing with this subject of true and false disciples. We saw in chapter 5, Jesus boldly proclaim his own deity, that he is God of very God, that he is one with the Father, that he is equal with the Father. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, there are two great miracles. And these miracles reestablish his deity and his miraculous powers. This is who I say I am. Let me show you who I am. And the first miracle, of course, was the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. The second miracle was Jesus walking on the water, Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were in a boat and they were struggling. There was a great storm that had come down upon them. And Jesus comes out to them walking on the water, stills the storm and gets into the boat with them. And then two weeks ago, as the crowd comes to Jesus, Jesus tells them in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not put your hope in the things of this life, in the food that perishes. Don't put your hope in food and clothing and material possessions and fame and power and prestige. Those things are transient, they're temporal, they're passing away. But work for, put your hope in the food that endures to eternal life. And so in verse 28, as we look at our text this morning, the crowd says to him, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So if you want us to work for the food that endures to eternal life, what are the works of God? What is it that we have to do to get what you've told us about? And it reminds us that throughout church history, people have asked the question, what works must I do to be saved? That is a question that people have been asking for thousands of years. What do I have to do to get to heaven? What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be right with God so he's pleased with me, so he won't punish me? What is it that I have to do? What are the works that I have to do? And we see this all over the world. All over the world. We see it in movies. We see it in plays. We see it in books that we read. Who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't go to heaven? And the secular mind comes up with all kinds of contrived methodologies of how someone goes to heaven, who goes and who doesn't, who is right with God and who isn't right with God. And so they ask, what must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? brings us to a very important verse, the key verse for this morning, and that is verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so we find that the work of God is not a human effort. It has nothing to do with human striving. It is believing in someone. It is believing in the one whom he has sent, whom the Father has sent, which is his son Jesus. That's the work of God. The work of God isn't human effort. The work of God is believing. 
which reminds us of that important truth that salvation is not a prize to be obtained. It is a gift to be received. So important. This is at the heart and soul of our whole faith. Everything we believe depends on this. Salvation is not some prize to be obtained. It is a gift to be received. Eternal life is a free gift of God. Eternal life is something that has been done for us, secured for us, but we must believe it and receive it. Some of our most treasured verses as Christians, as biblical Christians, are embedded in this. We think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not by works so that no one can boast. You are saved not by yourself. You don't save yourself. You don't save yourself because salvation is not by works. It is the gift of God. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, how people need to hear, how we need to rehear. You are not saved by righteous things you do. You are not saved by good things you do. You are saved by God's mercy and God's mercy alone through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We think of Acts 16.31 where it is said so succinctly, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 29. This is the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? You know what he wants, he expects from you? That you believe in him whom he has sent. That's how you receive salvation. That's how you get to heaven. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is the true bread from heaven. If belief in Jesus is the source of eternal life, then the crowd wants to know, who is Jesus? And so they say in verse 30, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So what sign are you going to give us, Jesus? What work are you going to perform? Now when we think of these two questions, we can look at them from two different angles. The first angle is, this isn't, these are arrogant questions. It's like, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, then prove yourself. Show us who you are. Do some sign. Do some work that proves to us you are who you claim to be. We want to know if you're really the person you say that you are. So in a sense, they're making Jesus prove himself. But there's another angle at which we can look at this, and that is, these are two good questions. 
Because before anyone can ever come to Jesus, you have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Before you can believe in him, before you can receive him, accept him as your Lord and Savior, before you can surrender your life to him, you need to know who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, they get very specific with him in verse 31. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Our fathers ate bread when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. He, the he is actually referring in the context to Moses, as we'll see in just a minute. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And what they're really saying is this. Hey, Jesus, you fed us on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You took five barley loaves and two fish. It was a great meal. You fed us all, and we were all fed to the full, and there were 12 baskets of food left over. That was great, but what are you going to do for us today? Look at Moses. He fed our forefathers, the children of Israel, in the wilderness every day for 40 years. He did it every day for 40 years. You've done one day. Why should we believe you? What are you going to do for us? Well, Jesus confronts them. Very important statements in verses 32 and 33. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and remember, when we see that phrase, which we've seen a number of times so far and will continue to see in the Gospel of John, pay attention. Listen very carefully, he's saying. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven it was my father and my father gives you the true bread from heaven the bread of God is the person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world and so Jesus confronts them with the difference between the bread that Moses gave them and the bread of God the father the bread that Moses gave them was actually bread from God. Moses didn't give you that bread. Moses was just a messenger. Moses was just a facilitator. Moses just gave you the instructions on how you were to go out and gather the manna, how often you could gather the manna, how much of it you could gather. Moses just gave you the instructions. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. That bread in the wilderness was from God. And the bread in the wilderness was a picture, a type, a foreshadowing of the true bread that is to come from the Father in the future. So when you're reading through the Old Testament and you come to that place where it talks about God providing bread from heaven, manna from heaven, that would come down and coat the ground, that they would go out and they would gather. When you read about that bread from heaven, Always remember, it is a picture. 
It is a type. It is a foreshadowing. It is supposed to point you to the future, to the, to the coming of the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus Christ himself, which reminds us again, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, the Old Testament is filled with pictures and types and foreshadowings of Jesus. In order to get the fullness of who Jesus is, we need to have a grasp of the Old Testament. And remember this. Those who ate the bread that Moses gave them, they all died. All of them died, including Moses. But the true bread, the true bread gives life to the world. Again, in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread is the person of Jesus Christ who comes down from heaven and gives life. Obviously, this refers to spiritual life, new life, resurrection life, eternal life, everlasting life, the life that only Jesus can give us. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. But don't miss this. He gives life to the world. There is a, an important global impact in this verse. It doesn't mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved. It means that the bread of life is going to be offered to the whole world, to people from every people group all across the earth. The true bread from heaven has come down to give eternal life to people from every people group in every part of the world. This is a great missions verse. Having incredible responsibilities for us as the New Testament church in taking the gospel to the world. Let me summarize it this way. The bread in the wilderness was to feed the body. The true bread from heaven will save your soul. The bread in the wilderness was to feed the body. The true bread from heaven will save your soul. So in verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Okay, we want that kind of bread. And at this point, they're curious. Starting to understand, but they're not there yet. It reminds us a lot of the early part of John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. And Jesus tells her that he's the living water. And she says, give me this water so that I don't have to come to the well each day and draw water from it. So some of them are beginning to understand. We're going to see, as I mentioned, this will divide them. It will ultimately divide them. Because some will believe and some will not. Next Sunday morning, Next Sunday morning, we are going to look at the first of the great I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. In verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But that is next Sunday morning. As we close this morning, I want to go back one more time to verse 29 because it is so important. 
Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. That's it. For salvation. For heaven. I want you to think of something with me this morning. Biblical Christianity is the only religion in the world that doesn't teach a works-based salvation. It's the only one. Every other religion in the world, you name what that religion might be, every other religion in the world teaches that you have to do something to come to their God to end up in some kind of eternal paradise someday. There are rules you have to keep. There's a certain kind of life you have to live. There are things you have to do toward others in order to merit, gain, earn this salvation. There are ceremonies that you have to participate in, rituals that you have to keep. You have to go so many times to church or to the synagogue or to the mosque. You have to pray so many times. And so even today, people all around the world are asking, how do I earn my way to heaven? They are every single day. When you think of atheism and agnosticism, it's really the minority of the world. Most people are desperately asking, how do I get to heaven? How do I, how do I get right with God? How do I know that God's not going to just punish me? And biblical Christianity says, you come to God through Jesus simply by receiving his free gift of salvation. It's not something you do. It's a gift that you receive. You see, the biblical gospel strips us of all human pride and all human self-effort. It's as if we get on our faces before God in humility, realizing there's nothing I can do, nothing to earn my own salvation. I simply believe and receive. I receive this gift that God has accomplished for me so graciously and so kindly. I repent of my sin. I repent of my self-effort and self-striving. And I humbly receive this gift that he wants to give to me. It reminds us of that truth that salvation is not something you do. It is something that has been done for you. It is not something you do. It is something that has been done for you. Belief in Jesus' death and resurrection alone saves you from your sin, brings you into a right relationship with God and guarantees you of everlasting life. When you humble yourself, surrender your life to Christ, receive, ask Him to come into your life, receive Him as Lord and Savior. When you come to that point in your life, He not only indwells you by the Holy Spirit, but He forgives you of everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever done. He brings you into intimate fellowship with the true and living God of heaven 
and earth. And you are guaranteed that one day when you die, you will be in the presence of the Lord. There's not only hope beyond the grave, there's great hope beyond the grave. We all know this truth. Some of you have heard this truth hundreds of times in your life. But as well as we know this, we must always come back to it again and again for the rest of our lives. You must come back to this truth again and again for the rest of your earthly life because it is, on the, it is the foundation upon which everything else we believe is built. That our salvation, our eternal life, that the salvation of your soul is a free gift that God offers to us in Jesus Christ and in him alone. You either receive it or you reject it. So let me say to you again, salvation is not a work that you do. It is a gift that you receive. You didn't save yourself. Jesus saved you. You didn't save yourself. Jesus saved you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you more than we could ever express for the free gift of eternal life. We thank you for Jesus' substitutionary death, for his glorious resurrection in which he conquered sin and death. In that, our salvation was secured. Lord, thank you. Thank you for doing what we could never do for ourselves. We are so grateful for our Savior Jesus, in whose name we always pray. Amen.